I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Welcome, my friends, to Wood Talk number 135 for June 5th, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about Japanese chisels with Wilbur Pan, getting the most from a dust extractor, planing one side of a board, veneering, storing leftover finish, and ash for Hurley's? Is that the guy from Lost? Hurley? He needs ash. Oh, okay. We'll when see. I think of Hurley's, I think of some friends after way too many drinks. <laughs> and also, Mark is a poopy head. That's <laughs> someone put that in the show notes. What's up Who with that? Put that in there. How did I that get? I don't there? know. All right. Well, Nicole. before we get to my poopy head, uh, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by ArborTech, makers of creative wood shaping tools. They're turning twenty-five this year, and to celebrate, they're holding a woodworking competition. The competition is simple and fun. Show yourself using an ArborTech tool to make a project. The prize package is $1,000 worth of ArborTech tools. For more information, check out their blog at blog.arbortechusa.com. And by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. All right, so let's move to what's on the bench. Shannon, what's this about maple? And you don't like it? Uh, maple's fine. It's just for a hand tool guy, it's just so slow to work because it's so blooming hard. Is it? It's like every every thirty seconds, I stop and go back to the bench, back to the sharpening bench, and rehone the chisels, and then go back. I mean, when part of it is yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, part of it is I have tinned through mortises to chop. Yeah, and they're they're big. They're they're quite wide. They're slightly more than an inch wide. So I don't have a mortising chisel that wide, and mm. it wouldn't even really matter because. Trying to drive an inch of steel through any wood is hard, but when you add it in hard maple to the fact, it's just, if you're going to be a hand to woodworker, avoid hard maple. Soft yeah. maple works just great. And do as I say, not as I do, because it sucks. There you go. We got to set, you have to set your extremes. You know, you got to know what the crappy stuff is to appreciate the good stuff. So, well, you know, well, the, the crazy thing, thing, go ahead. This should be a challenge to the arborists out there. When are you going to come up with a medium maple so that it wouldn't be so hard? <laughs> That's terrible. That's stupid. I think, I think that's actually soft maple. That's a dumb oh, joke. Okay, yeah. wait, when are you going to come up with squashy maple? <laughs> squashy maple. Squishy maple. There you go. I like it. That's it? That Well, yeah, I'm, I'm building a lathe. That's what the maple's out of. It's just, you know, I, I think I mentioned a while ago I ended up baking another lathe because the footage I had of it was terrible. So yeah. I took it kind of as an opportunity to, to improve the design. So for once, I actually built a prototype. It wasn't intended to be a prototype, but you know, there's there was some kind of some major and some just little like creature comfort things that I changed. I figured I might as well just rebuild the whole thing and make it better this time. Right. So um, the maple came because I came. There was some 
already S4S material that was in the lumber yard that I was able to get for less than cost. So I thought, hey, this is great. This will save me time. Nope, not so much. Nice, nice. Well, you know, uh, this week on Renaissance Woodworker, another lathe. <laughs> another week, yeah. another lathe. You got to get a shirt like that. Yeah, As the is, shop turns. <laughs> right. This is now my third one. Attaboy. Yeah, and I've got a fourth one coming up in about a month. Why You're going to have to expand your lathe realm. Yeah, maybe, or just move them into the backyard. My, like most houses will have like, you know, cars up on center blocks. I'll have lathes up on center blocks. Just old lathe parts laying around. You know, know, if you keep making them out of wood, you could just burn them as they go. Just be like, "Eh, you know what? It's really cold today. I think I'm going to go burn a lathe and I'll make another one next week. Back to nature. That'll be like, um, that'll be like hazing for an apprentice of mine. There you go. You know, you light the lathe on fire. Now turn, turn boy. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right, Matt, what about you? Well, you know, keeping up with the theme of turning, which looking at the notes, I think we all have turning things going on today. No. Uh, coming back from w- weekend of, with wood a few weeks ago, I, one of the classes I took was all about sharpening turning tools. Because I figured I could ask Shannon, but where's the fun in that? Because yeah. probably would give me a lot of information and I probably wouldn't listen to him and ask him for his notes again. <laughs> so instead what I did is I, I took the lessons I learned from Brian Simmons and I – actually came downstairs one day and said, you know what, let's let's get started with this. Quit being such a wuss when it comes to these turning tools. And I managed to sharpen my roughing gouge, which I, it, it's amazing how the chips like just fly right off that. Before, it was the most <laughs> awful experience. It was Even a rough with, ride. You know, <laughs> with basswood, it still would keep catching and it wouldn't go. <laughs> nice, nice. So, Matt, but the one thing I... Tormac? Yeah, I was just going to say the one thing I, I, I'm not so sure, and Brian even talked about this in the class, is how he prefers to use just you know a traditional grinder and, and go with something like that and how the, the Tormek is going to – it'll work, but it's going to take a while. I got a nice result from it. I mean they've got a ton of jigs that will help you set it up without even thinking about it, and I was able to get a good result with it. But I did notice when I moved on to – I think it was my skew chisel, which – I think I still have a little bit more work to it because I, I messed it up elsewhere, which I'm not going to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the pre-class uh, sharpening attempt, which turns out that I've really got to stop doing stuff like that. I, I read something on the Internet, and it's obviously that was a lie for that particular <laughs> uh, that post. Uh, but when it, when it comes to re-getting that edge all set up, the Tormek is taking way, way too long. So I am once again eyeing up the old grinder that I have out in the garage that's just been sitting there ever since the Tormek came in. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Okay, what do I do? You need to get yourself a Wolverine grinding jig and that, get get that, a nice uh, a nice fine grinding stone for your grinder and yeah. set that bad boy up and you will be sharpening within seconds and, and right back to the lathe. That thing is awesome. Well, you know, that's exactly what Brian had for his. In fact, I've got footage of it. And on top of it, the funny thing is I have like one of those cooler running Norton stones. I can't remember what the mm. grit is on it. Right. I still think it was higher than the one that Brian was using. I mean, Brian's using this thing. He's like, you know what? Like 200, that's fine. You don't really need it super sharp. Just get in there and it'll work perfectly mm. good. Right. And he's getting great results from it. So, yeah, there's that part of me that's like, mm, let's see. I, I, I should just quit being such a wuss about it and just break that <laughs> out and give it a well, shot. Here's, here's the question. I don't know offhand, but what you should do is compare the pricing between a Wolverine jig and that Tormek makes like a little bench grinder adapter that oh. you can use the same Tormek jigs. And it, it's like that, you know, the bar that the jigs run on. Right. Um, and the little thing that, uh, the little knob that tightens the bar in place, they make, they sell that separately and they have like instructions, you set it on some blocks of wood and it works with just any old bench grinder. Um, I don't know what the costs are, um, I mean, the Wolverine jig's probably a little bit more out of the box, but the thing is, if you already have the Tormac, you've got the turning tool jigs, right? You can you have that same kind of locked in, like dial in that the functionality because the the way I use it mostly is for the bowl jig, the bowl gouge because it got a real complex grind on it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so since you already have it, I mean, if you didn't have a Tormac, I would say obviously the Wolverine's the way to go, but I imagine they're probably similar in price. I don't think it's that expensive. It's like maybe I'm not even going to guess because I don't know. But uh, yeah, look it up. It's the jig is ninety bucks, like eighty seven ninety five. What for the, the Tormac the Wolverine? One. I'm sorry, yeah, for the Wolverine oh. jig. Okay, and the Vera grind, which is like what I use for the super flute bowl gouge, that's an additional fifty two bucks, fifty three bucks. Okay, so but you can do quite a bit with that alone. I mean, that's all I have is the primary jig and then the Vera grind attachment. And that's like, uh, you know, you're looking at maybe $130, 140 bucks complete. So 
not too bad. No, not not bad. Instead, the one funny thing about this is now that I am feeling comfortable and I'm stepping in there and I'm actually seeing shavings come flying off rather than just some of the other things that were happening prior to that. It's encouraging. <laughs> it's very encouraging. It's very exciting. And the one thing I was joking around with with my family is like, you know, one of those, you know, we're we're down. To, we're a one car family now. We have a, a bay in the garage. And I thought this would be a perfect spot to turn it into my turning bay mm, for the summer. Ooh, so that bay. way I can keep an eye on the kids so they're not riding on my lawn again. And, this, and then on top of it, if they do, then I can throw the, the turning tools at them and I'll just resharpen them. Awesome. So, well, yeah. just, just for comparison purposes, the Tormac mounting uh, jig thing, whatever, for a bench grinder is $64. Okay. So I don't know if you oh, already have bad. the turning jigs. Yes, you I have do. A little, yep. That might be the obvious solution then because then you're paying 65 bucks, assuming you already have a regular grinder. Yes, I do. Yeah, it's, and, it's a really old one, but it still works. I, I blued many a tool on it. So I'm doing good. <laughs> that means it's working. Works a little too well. <laughs> <laughs> of course, then that's when I got the Norton stone. But anyways, though, so I will definitely I, I will have to talk a little bit more about this and experiment and get back with everybody on it. That's good to know. Cool. Uh, if you can send me that information, maybe put it in the show notes just for me. I would appreciate it. <laughs> Check that. the show notes later, Matt. You'll get what you need. <laughs> there we go. So anyways, that's what's been going on. Mark, what's going on with you and your turning? I see you made some ellipticals. You were doing some working out. <laughs> something about your legs. You're yes. trying to. I'm them? just trying to get in shape, you know, on the elliptical machine. Is it elliptical or ecliptical? Um, it it's ecliptical. a coat rack in our house. It's called the so. couch. Oh <laughs> uh, yes. So anyway, that's awesome. <laughs> I've been, I've been. Uh, that's a good point because you know what happened in my house? It became a rack for clothing as well. Um, does anyone actually use those things when they're in a house? I don't think so. Uh, my my kids when they were younger they one liked to stand in one side and the other one on on the other one and they used it kind of like a weird seesaw <laughs> oh, yeah, to see who could doing what <laughs> nice well anyway no I've, I've I've been cutting ellipses and the tilt top table has an elliptical top so I started looking into like those elliptical jigs where you can actually uh, mount a rat- router on a sort of trammel arm setup and it uh, just kind of follows these two cross paths in the center you've got this little unit that you would build and amazingly enough it follows that path and creates an ellipse and the thing is those are fairly complex if you're just using it to draw an ellipse it's not that bad but if you're using it to guide a router there's a lot that you need to be worried about to make sure that everything is nice and smooth as you're routing a template or a workpiece so i just decided to do the drawing trick have you guys ever seen that just using string a couple of nails yeah yeah, yes. and, uh, I really do that. Yeah, I actually the first time I saw it was years ago on Woodworks, um, and it's super easy to draw a perfect or at least close to perfect ellipse. And I'm like, you know what? Why spend a day and like it would be a, literally an entire video dedicated to making this jig when I could just draw one and you know finesse the the curve to the line. Like whether your Atta line boy. is straight or curved. Oh boy, I'm so I proud. Mean, that's <laughs> what I shoot for, Shannon, <laughs> is, uh, is when you're proud. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the great thing that I love about what we do is if, if you get to a point in your woodworking where you can get to a line, however you get there, you just drew a line and you can get there. It just opens up doors. Like, why spend all this time building a jig for this is literally the first ellipse that I think I've ever had to make. And I don't <laughs> anticipate. One, yeah. yeah, I don't anticipate making another one anytime soon. So this elliptical jig is neat in concept. I just don't think it's worth the time to execute. So I just cut it out rough and then uh, used a, a rasp and a flexible sanding strip and worked it back to what to me looks like a perfect ellipse. And on that tabletop, I think everyone else who looks at it, they're not going to be like, oh, you cut that by hand. You know, It's like, <laughs> it looks like an ellipse. So yeah, so I'm pretty happy with my hand cut. I can tell. Um, So that was that. And I also wanted to mention something that I started to get into this week and it has to do with reading, which I know Matt doesn't like to do a lot of. Oh, you said the R word. Yeah. Um, I read a lot of like science fiction and fantasy novels just in my past time, along with comic books. And I started to get into Goodreads. And they've got an app and it's a website basically to share things you're reading with people. And uh, I read this good book. Here's my review of it. And you follow people and you can see what else they're reading. The cool thing is you can also start groups. And I looked around and there wasn't a woodworking group there, although this is a, a fairly popular thing for like, you know, general literature. So I decided to start a woodworking group. And if you are a Goodreads user, you can go there and just search for woodworking. You'll find us. I think there's like 12 people in there now, which is, Oh, so you know. I'm not the only one that's like, oh, 
boycott that. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the thing is, just like we did the review show for DVDs, isn't it nice to see what other people are saying about these books? I mean, a new book seems to come out every day from, from one of the various publishers. So it'd be nice to see what other people say about them because they're certainly not all created equal. So uh, head to Goodreads and uh, sign up for the group. It's, you know, everything is free. You don't have to ask to join. You can just join up with the woodworking group and share some of the books you've read. Let us know what you think and give us some, uh, some reviews for those. It'll, I think it'll be a lot of fun to get into that. Forget about the woodworking thing. I want to go to the sci-fi one. It's I'm good, looking dude. for good sci-fi. It's good. Yeah, it's especially if you're just trying to get recommendations and you want to build a list. And I've got a list of novels that eventually I'll, I'll get to them all, but I like to keep adding to it. So um, that's a good way to do it. And a lot of people, when you sign up, it'll, it'll pull in from like Facebook and Twitter and Gmail and all that stuff. You'll find a lot of the people you already are sort of in the same circles with, they're on Goodreads. So. That right. is a good idea, actually, because Thanks, I Matt. do once in a while pick up a book. And I will always seem to pick Put up a the drink one that on goes, it. you know, it's just horrible. <laughs> Usually I just use it to like pretend I'm doing something so people will leave me alone. It's a funny looking coaster, but I'll use it. <laughs> Matt, we know you're not actually reading that. It's upside down. What? Oh, it is. <laughs> oh, look at that. Your iPod is inside <laughs> the book. <laughs> yeah. Nice. All right. So let's move into the news. We've got a couple of uh, things here to talk about. Matt, you want to jump in there? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we have this very first one here, and this was sent in from Brian, and Brian was referring to an article from the Boston Globe that came out, and it's regarding a major tourist attraction in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Massachusetts? Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Uh, apparently, a replica of the original Mayflower is sitting in dry dock while shipwrights are trying to find exactly the right white oak, and it might miss much of the tourist season, hurting the local economy. So kind of a, an interesting little article talking about the exploits of white oak and how it's destroying our world. <laughs> is that how you would take it? I think? That, sounds, that sounds about right to me. Okay. The, the, the only thing I'll say, and I sent Brian a rather lengthy email in response to this, I was contacted, well, not me, but my company was contacted by these folks. The only catch to this that the story doesn't bring up is that this, I guess you'd call them a museum, was kind of hoping that whoever came up with a white oak would do it for free. <laughs> and I think that might be why they're having trouble finding it. Jeez. Sounds like a valid plan to me. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, good to know. Anyway, okay. Uh, let's see here. Now, the other one we have is from uh, Scott Meek is auctioning off a mesquite smoother for a charity to benefit the uh, folks in Oklahoma who recently have been rattled by the tornadoes. I'd love to come up with a joke, but unfortunately, this is a very serious matter. Uh, Oklahoma has really been just getting pounded by uh, inclement weather and it's just it, it's it's devastating to see this so uh, for those of you who are interested in possibly helping out you're getting an amazing wooden smoother I mean I know Shannon you have experience with uh, Scott Meeks smoothers with his planes and yep, there's just perfect. so many great things coming out of there it's not only are you potentially getting yourself something really really nice if you were to bid on this but you're actually helping to put money towards a really good cause awesome yeah get a Scott Meek plane and never worry about grain direction again Booyah. Mm. in right. the plane or using the plane yes okay good exactly yep. uh, okay around the web Matt, you got the first ones. Go for it. All right. Uh, this one from uh, the first thing we have in here is Andrew sent in a link for a story about a guy that built a car out of wood. Now, I do want to say this. Oh, it's not Poland. Where was this at? I, it's been a Hungary. while since I. There it is. Hungary. Which like I me, actually right am now. at the moment. Yeah. So, uh, But this, this time, unlike Splinter. Do you remember Splinter? We saw that at the 2009 oh, yes. AWFS. I touched this entire thing is wood. Somebody said something about the engine. I, I think that's pushing it a little too much, but I, I haven't, like I guess I haven't watched the whole entire thing. Um, okay. It looked all wood to me. It okay. Looks, that works for me. It's very woody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on to the next one then. And this one is uh, a Don uh, Hold on. It says right here, the engine from a Fiat 126 steering wheel and windshield are virtually the only parts that are not made oh. from wood. So wah, wah, wah. Oh, well, the CD the player lied to me again. Yes, it's a wooden CD player. It works wooden, great. It's very multi-disc changer. It's awesome. <laughs> wooden satellite radio. It's great. Wouldn't you like to have that? <laughs> oh, boo. Okay, let me move on to the next one. And Don asks, how can you watch these guys' video and not be inspired? So you have to watch the video, and then you can get back with Don on it. But 
Uh, from what I saw in this uh, nice little snippet here, this was this was some pretty cool furniture, if I remember right. I, I hate that I put these up and then I forget to make a note for myself about what it is that we're looking at. Do do Chet and Wolf furniture makers that do Chet and Wolf? I feel like we've mentioned them on the show before. Great you, YouTube channel. You should subscribe yeah. to it. There's incredible furniture there. Hmm. Yeah. This, this particular video is making a secretary desk, and it's a mighty fine looking secretary desk, I have to say. Yep. I'm watching Sweet. it now. Go ahead. Okay. Keep talking. Well, I'm going to watch. While you're you watching a mighty that. fine secretary to sit at that secretary desk. <laughs> I think I know one, but Sam okay. won't let me hire her. So, uh, and see, and then the last one that I have here is Andy created a saw sharpening video for woodworkers. So he shared this link with us. It's a two and a quarter hour video on YouTube called Sharpening Western Saws. So this, this was a culmination of a blog series that he wrote for Lumberjocks called Saw Talk. The video is aimed at those new to saw sharpening and covers the theory, the tools, and the practice of sharpening Western saws. You get to look over his shoulder as he sharpens four saws, two back saws, and two hand saws. And he says he explains the saw sharpening process and how you apply it to different scenarios. Wow. Uh, so we have – well, there's two links here. One's to the, uh, the series of, of blog series at Lumberjocks, and then the other one is the direct link to the video on YouTube. So definitely check that out at two and a quarter hours. Hmm, you wow. know, two two hours and 15 minutes on handsaw sharpening, that, like, the way that makes me feel must be the same way Nicole feels when I tell her to sit down and watch an entire guild build. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, like, I act, I, trust me, as someone who, who talks a lot about, like, little tiny details, I totally understand, and I, I think it's absolutely admirable, especially the charity thing that he's doing. But right. holy smokes, I would have trouble getting through a two-hour and 15-minute video on saw sharpening. Yeah, definitely. But, I, I actually agree with you when I sharpen my hand saws. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I'm sure it sounds like it's super informative for someone who's really looking to get the details and clearly something like that to, to get everything right. I imagine he does it justice. I actually would like to watch it so I can <laughs> express an actual opinion on it. Um, but right. just the topic by title alone makes me want to fall asleep. Yeah, Let's those just part say of, it's probably shorter than what Heinrich would do. It's true. Uh, that that guy Heinrich. is Mr. Thoroughpants. <laughs> All right, moving on to poll of the week. Have you ever made a chair? Interesting I question. Yes, I have, Mark. Yeah. Well, good to know. Thanks. Did you I answer have. the poll? No, I forgot all about it. Ah, uh, you should have because you need to up that number. Where twenty three percent, only twenty three percent said yes, and it posed some challenges. Uh, Fifty four, the vast majority said uh, no, but I would like to build one. Nine percent said no, and I never thought about building one. Eight percent said yes, they're easy, and three percent said uh, they're lying. What kind of chair are they building? <laughs> I'm wondering. Three uh, percent said IKEA. That's it. They just assembled it. Three percent said no, not interested. Well, I mean, technically, if you just put a board in the grass and sit on it, that's a chair, right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. There's yeah, your eight percent. Boom. Uh, by the way, poll of the week is uh, something that Tom Ivino makes for us at Tom'sWorkbench.com. Don't want to forget to mention our buddy Tom. Okay, let's move into the kickback. Uh, Matt, why don't you kick us back? Okay, I will give you a nice little kick to the backside there. Thank you, thank you. Oh, oh wait, oh, I'll do this one first, though. This is from Jim, and Jim's very nice. He's very subtle with his kicks. Uh, says, I just listened to number 134. I'm assuming that would be Wood Talk number 134 and found the discussion about the purported decline of the craft to be interesting. Maybe you feel like this has already been beaten to death, but a couple of other thoughts occurred to me. Short of a, cons of a census, we have no real idea how many people are engaging in woodworking, but we have some surrogate indicators. One is the growth of tool manufacturers, particularly with respect to hand tools. Not only are boutique producers thriving, but companies such as Lee Valley and Lee Nielsen are moving from strength to strength. And the fact that other companies such as Stanley are moving into the lower end market in a big way uh, suggests there are plenty of customers unless we're in a bubble, which we won't really likely know for another 10 or 15 years, then it would appear that the craft is thriving. Uh, secondly, woodworking may be a part of a larger movement, the rejection of mass production and standardization that started in the 50s. Look at the proliferation of microbrewers all over the country for those who don't want to drink watery beer. Here in southwest Michigan, every little town has a farmer's market because there's a demand for quality, locally grown produce instead of the tasteless stuff that comes from California and Mexico. Sorry, California and Mexico. Uh, in the case of furniture, there will always be a market for mass-produced pieces. There's also a reaction to the Ikeaization sorry, of the marketplace. For some people, that means making your own, perhaps even like one of those chairs that somebody just talked about. Mm-hmm. So, and that was from Jim. 
Nice uh, stuff, Jim. Yeah, thank right, you, Jim. See. All right, we have so we have two more here. We have one from Keith, and he says, "You guys worried about the uh, origins of Handworks 2013?" The following excerpt is from Joel's Tools for Woodworking Working Wood blog. I get that wrong every time. Joel's Tools for Working Wood blog. The one person who made a big difference. My hat's off to Jamil Abraham of Benchcrafted, who came up with the idea of handworks, organized the show, did all the heavy lifting, waited around for booth cargo to both arrive and depart, paid for the forklift, the list goes on. Jamil, we can't thank you enough for the work you did to make Handworks 2013 such a rousing success. So uh, thanks, Jamil. Yeah. Thank you. You know what I think is cool about that whole thing is it's come out in the last week that, you know, Jamil and and his brother were kind of behind the whole thing. Um, for what I understand it, Jamil was very like trying to stay out of the limelight. I just think that's cool. That's very humble of him. He didn't want it to be about benchcrafted. He wanted it to be just a place for hand tool makers to get together. And it's the other guys have been like, you know, screw that, Jamil. I'm outing you. So <laughs> no kidding. I think it's cool that his name has come into the into the public, into the limelight. Well, and you can see in a situation like that where you're a tool company and you're asking other tool companies who, I guess, you know, depending on your perspective, they might see each other as, you know, competition. Um, It's difficult for for them to bring the people in. But ultimately, it's one of those things where you're certainly, especially when you're talking about like boutique things like that, you're much more powerful grouped than you are as individuals just fighting each other. It kind of reminds me of like... Uh, blogging and podcasting early on where where it just made a whole lot more sense for people not to create feuds like what are you fighting about we all have we're all here for the same reason uh sort of thing so that makes a lot of sense to me well good for them yeah good stuff all right all right so Uh, um, we have yeah go do the the last one because i'm going to try and get the live stream going while while you're talking okay and this last one comes from Woodchuck, and Woodchuck says on one of the recent wood talk shows you guys were discussing how hard it is to set up a lock miter bit this is a link from Infinity Tools with a solution, and so we will have this link in there, and hopefully it will be a solution for many of you because my solution is just simply not to use it. Trash can. <laughs> you know what I think would be fun for our listeners is if we actually read off the links on the show because this one in particular would be a lot of fun. Okay, go ahead. Every, every link we have this week is, is one of those like ridiculous 7 billion character links. I think it would be a lot of fun for us to read that off. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, okay, what do we have next here? Um, <clears throat> Some point where Matt doesn't talk. Yeah, I'll <laughs> tell you what. talk is brought to you by Matt. Since, <laughs> since I am going to try and get this thing going live, I will play the email um, that I, or the voicemail conversation with Wilbur that I wasn't going to play before, but we'll play it. Um, right, I'm going to go get a snack. Yeah, go ahead. Go get a snack. Um, <laughs> all right, so we're going to move into email right now. And the first email is from... Mariah, who has a question about Japanese chisels. And and this is something I thought would be a lot more fun to bring on someone who really specializes in this stuff. And that would be our buddy Wilbur Pan. And I've got uh, a little pre-recorded segment here. It's about 10 minutes long. So have a listen to it and we'll see you on the other side. Um, The reason I asked Wilbur to to help us out here is because we got a question from Mariah. She was asking about Japanese chisels, and I happen to be a huge fan of Japanese chisels, but when I did it, I kind of pieced together my set of uh, Fujiro chisels over a long period of time because those things are expensive, so I added one at a time. So she's got a question that I figured that Wilbur would be able to help us with, and uh, if you don't mind, I'll read the question real quick. She says, I just bought a Stanley, uh, a set of Stanley Sweetheart chisels, and I'd like to expand my chisel collection by adding some Japanese chisels. I've been looking around online, and I see a plethora of foreign brands that I'm not familiar with. Prices range from $10 to $75 per chisel. As a hobbyist, I'd like to find a decent set, but I don't want to break the bank. If you already had a good set of Western-style chisels, would you even consider a set of Japanese chisels? Uh, I've run across a set of, uh, she po- gives us a link here to a 10-piece set that sold by Grizzly for $159 for 10 chisels. So I guess ultimately we'll, we'll get to the last part of her question, which is whether she should even bother since she already has a good set of chisels. But what I wanted to touch on here is these less expensive brands that are out there. I have my brain wrapped around the Western style chisels and what a cheap set of chisels can do. But Japanese chisels are a little bit different in the way that they're made. And I just wonder, is it worth it to buy a cheap set of Japanese chisels or should you be spending the $65, $75, $85 per chisel price range? 
Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I think it's just like anything else when it comes to tool purchases, where um, you basically are going to get what you pay for. And I'm certainly not one to begrudge anybody for needing to follow any sort of uh, budget, because you know, believe me, I've been there in in, in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it is uh, Japanese chisels are no really no different than anything else in terms of you get what you pay for. Um, I, I do think, though, you know, the reason that there's um, uh, so many questions about well, which brand, which you know, where should you get them from? Is because there's just not um, a whole lot known out there about um, what goes into making a Japanese chisel. Mm-hmm. In addition, you know, I I highly doubt fine woodworking is going to do any sort of Japanese chisel shootout review anytime <laughs> in the near future. Right. And on top of that, there are relatively few dealers that are scattered only in certain parts of the country, and then beyond that, you have to go overseas. So it's kind of hard to. Um, you know, try the various types of chisels in person. And, and quite frankly, um, getting into Japanese chisels and Japanese tools in general is a little bit of a leap, a leap of faith mm-hmm. uh, if, you're gonna, if you're going to go that route. But um, I think the best way to answer this question is to um, think about what actually goes into making a Japanese chisel. And the process is quite a bit different than what goes into the typical type of Western chisel that you see these days. So if you can imagine this, you have a Japanese blacksmith that has to have been doing this for a while because uh, there are so many ways that this process can go wrong. And what he does, he takes a hard piece of steel and a soft piece of steel and he sticks it into um, uh, his forge and heats it up to a particular temperature and then when it hits the right temperature, he hauls it out and he pounds the bejesus out of it mm-hmm. with a hammer. Right. Um, and, and that does a lot of things that that forge laminates the, um, uh, the, the two pieces of steel together. Um, it actually alters the property of the hard steel. Uh, and that's actually one of the big things in terms of how it gets uh, how that piece of hard steel um, uh, is able to become very hard and take a sharp edge and hold its edge for a long time and simultaneously be easy to uh, to sharpen, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, after, and, and then they have to quench it and do more temperature control stuff there, and then they have to uh, uh, finish filing it, put the hollow in the back, put the handle on, make sure the handle looks nice, all that. So as you can imagine, it's a very very labor intensive procedure. Sure. Now, um, if you consider um, all the effort that goes into one, you know this is what you're paying for. Uh, Japanese tool steel isn't really any different from Western tool steel in that you do have to heat it up to a certain temperature and then drop it down, and then that's how you give the steel its properties. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, the type of steels that's used in Japanese chisels, the tolerance for the temperature range is actually a lot tighter than what happens in Western um, uh, tool steel. So there's a you know, higher level of quality control that goes into that. Okay. Plus, knowing how to hammer the thing, putting the effort into hammering the thing out, um, that's what you're paying for. Um, and you're paying for the fit and uh, finish. You know, Lee Nielsen tools look really nice. You're paying for that. Lee Valley tools look really nice. You pay, you're paying for that. And the good quality Japanese uh, chisels do look nicer than the cheaper ones if you are able to put them side by side and you have an idea of what you're uh, looking for. And, you know, that may or may not be important to you, but, you know, it's something to consider. Sure. So if you find a a $15 chisel like, you know, the one that it's in the set that Grizzly is selling, Something has to give, and right. usually it's uh, it, it's either in the quality control or it's in the hammering process. So, um, as I said before, the um, uh, when you're when you're doing the forge welding thing, um, there's a lot of hammering that goes into that, and and there's a lot um, involved in knowing how hard to hammer, how often to hammer, and make sure you distribute everything evenly so you get a quality tool. Um, the cheaper ones, um, the hammering might be done by a machine. Uh, they may not go into such a you know um, elaborate procedure to hammer the thing out, um, and I was uh, I was talking with uh, Joel Moskowitz from Tools for Working Wood um, uh, a while back, and he pointed out that when um, Western tools are are um, are are are, are um, drop forged, basically they put the blank in, and yes, they forge it and hammer it, but it's just one big smack with a big weight. Mm, And that is not going to be the same thing as spending the extra time doing it. So uh, my usual suggestions for anyone that's looking to get into a Japanese chisel is the price range um, where you're where you're, you're going to be reasonably sure you're going to be looking to get a quality Japanese chisel is probably forty fifty dollars on up. Right. Second thing is um, find a dealer that you trust because um, you do have to rely. Um, on the dealer because um, uh, just because there are not that many of them out there. Good news is most of them are really great people and they are looking to help 
going to set you up with the uh, nicest tool that you can get because if they provide good customer service, you're going to go buy more tools uh, from them. What are some so, of the vendors that you recommend specifically? Um, so let's see. I like Heat a Tool, mm-hmm. and again, it's probably because uh, um, I talked to them first uh, when I was first looking into this, and I just you know somehow struck it, you know, hit it off with the people that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that that work there. Uh, Jap- Japan Woodworker certainly has a wide variety of uh, uh, Japanese tools, but they're kind of like um, the difference between dealing with, say, tools for working wood and dealing with woodcraft. They're much, you know, larger you know, operation, a little bit less personable. Okay. Um, overseas, uh, let's see. Oh, over, uh, oh and, and there's a relatively new um, company called um, Two Pines. It's some guys in North Carolina that are interested in. Um, uh, in uh, uh, Japanese tools, and they have a, a website uh, where they've started selling chisels and saws and planes and things like that. Cool. Um, overseas, there are a couple of dealers. There's this um, website called Tools from Japan, which is run by this Australian guy named Stu, um, and he um, sells re- you know real quality um, stuff. And then there's a place called Japan-Tool.com, uh, run by a Japanese guy named So Yamashita who lives in Australia. <laughs> Okay. Um, he, yeah, uh, he tends to you know, like the more high end uh, type things. Okay. And um, uh, without looking like I'm trying to plug something, actually on my blog there's a uh, there's a page that's uh, that's listed links. And basically, if I've forgotten anyone, um, that is uh, a list of all of the um, Japanese tool sellers that I know of that deal in English. Um, okay. And you can you know, take a look at uh, um, the blog. Uh, my my blog and and check out that page and that's uh, giantcypress.net by the way um yep. so to answer her ultimate question then at least from my perspective if she already has a good high quality set of western chisels i don't think it's necessarily that important that she goes for a full set right now do you i mean let, let i would rather see her add a couple at a time when she could afford them and ultimately eventually piece together a really nice set i don't see a necessity to just go and get a five or six piece set right now Oh, I, I completely agree because that's actually how I started out um, with Japanese chisels. I just bought four yeah. um, because, you know, I didn't know exactly how they would be. And, you know, there, there are a lot of things to like about Japanese chisels. There are a lot of things to like about Western chisels. But <clears throat> the main thing is that because the size of a Japanese chisel is quite a bit different in your hand, they feel quite a bit different. So mm-hmm. I would actually – I completely agree with you. Uh, what I would suggest is – um, take whatever budget that you have and just buy one and buy one in a size that you'll probably use a lot, a half inch chisel, quarter inch chisel, right. uh, maybe a three eighths inch chisel or the, you know, the metric equivalent. It doesn't really matter that, uh, that much and try it out. And if you like it, buy more and then she can sell the Stanleys and buy even more. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, but, but that, that's completely the way to go. And actually if you had no chisels, I would actually suggest just get a couple and see if you like them because it's better to have fewer high quality chisels than a whole bunch of not so, not so good ones. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. There are some folks that I've heard that have gone the, the Japanese chisel route and just something about it. They didn't like, whether it just didn't feel right in hand or, uh, you know, the sharpening process, I don't know, something about it just didn't click with them and they went back to Western style. So getting a taste of it first and only investing in one, uh, that would probably be fairly easy to resell if you needed to. If it's a high quality chisel, you could sell it off easily. Uh, right. Sounds like a good idea to me. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. Well, thank you so much, Wilbur. I really appreciate it. Um, you could check out Wilbur's site at giantcypress.net, and he has a bunch of great blog posts and resources and all uh, all kinds of entertaining stuff on his blog. So you definitely want to check that out. Um, so thanks again, Wilbur. I really appreciate you hanging out with us tonight. Okay, great. Thanks for uh, having me again. Oh, absolutely. Take care. All right. All right. So we, we do want to thank Wilbur for hanging out with us and talking to us about Japanese chisels. And uh, let's move on to the next question. Matt, you're up. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I get myself right back in here. And this one comes from Chris and he says, I have a dust collection upgrade in my future. At the moment, I have one of those Rockler one horsepower dust collectors for the whole shop. It's a, it's a small shop and it does okay. Space is an issue. I have a Festool 36 dust collector with a dust deputy on top. I bet that looks pretty fancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, My question is this. What machines do you think the Festool dust collector can handle other than the Festool hand tools? Could you get away with a couple of Festool collectors instead of a large cyclone on, say, a bandsaw, a miter saw, or even a table saw, even for a while? So 
you know, this is one of those things that when it seems like when you really start looking at your tools and when it comes to the dust collection, you kind of wrestle with this one. At least I know I did at one point mm -hmm. where I started thinking I needed to step up to the dust collector. And then I looked at the prices and said, do I really need to? In short, sure, for a little while, you could get away with using just your shop vac or your little dust collector for many of these tools. But the problem is going to be the overall uh, effectiveness and efficiency and everything else is going to go downhill really fast, especially let's say you're using it on a larger tool or a tool that kicks out a lot of uh, chips and, and shavings, say like a, a planer or a jointer. Mm. That's where you're really going to notice that it's not working quite as well as you want to. And depending on the size of say the, the table saw that you're using uh, it, it, again, you're really going to notice that while it may pick up a good amount of it, it's not going to do as great of a job as say a dedicated dust collector would one of the larger ones. Yeah. So uh, my, my opinion at this point is I, I say, yeah, you can get away with it for right now, but you at some point are really going to want to step up to the larger one because I've even seen some people discuss that you could actually start really wearing out the small dust collector, depending on what it is that you have it attached to. Yeah. Now, I don't know that much. I just look at the efficiency part of it and think, you know, again, it, it would work, but it just would really have to be working that much harder to give you the same amount. Right. Cool. All right, Shannon, you're up. Let's see. Keith says that <clears throat> I have some one and a quarter inch cherry boards that are already milled. Someone gave them to me, and they have slots already routed for a sliding dovetail on one side of each board. I know that when you mill, you have to take equal passes on each side to relieve stress in the wood to avoid cupping. I would like to plane down the side with the sliding dovetail, which will leave the boards three-quarter of an inch thick, which I will need for a tabletop. Do you know if I can take a couple of passes on the sliding dovetail side a week and sticker and let the boards sit without it cupping, or are the boards eventually going to cup because it isn't going to get milled on each side? You know, what I think is funny is um, I want to credit this mill on both sides thing to Glenn Huey because I, I remember that was the first place I had actually heard it. Yeah, me too. And it made perfect sense. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. And that was like, what, maybe two years ago? Yep. And no one talked about it before then. Yet we all milled lumber. <laughs> So, and I'm trying to think if I actually did the whole mill flip mill before that, because I seem to remember it was a pretty profound thing when Glenn came out with that. It was like, oh, that's so stupid simple. Why am I not doing that? I think it's something you may have done and we've all done just because it's part of the process. You just want to yeah, you know, clean up both sides until the board is clean. But I don't think it's ever been so deliberate as Glenn made it out to be. Right. right. Doing it to prevent cupping. Mm -hmm. So right. the way I see it, Keith, if you were to mill it all on one side down to three quarters of an inch thick, you're really not doing anything different than if you were to resaw that one and a quarter inch board because you're pulling, what, a half inch of material off. So first mm -hmm. of all, it would be a heck of a lot easier if you have the capacity to resaw it, do it that way because then you can actually save the wood that's on either side of that dovetail. I don't know how big this board is, but that might be you know a little bit easier to do. But if you were resawing a board, you know – there is no like, quote, safe way to do that to prevent cupping. You just resaw it and then let it rest for a while. And, you know, sometimes it cups, sometimes it, it doesn't. So I think what you, you should be okay, but at the same time, if you have the time to, to make a couple of passes a week, sure, <laughs> knock yourself out. You know, I mean, I, I see that that will allow it to come into equilibrium a much, much easier. I mean, I guess it depends also on what the moisture content is like now. If it's a kiln-dried wood and it's relatively well acclimated, um, I'm not going to say it's not going to move, but um, you're going to be a lot safer than a board that's really, really wet to begin with. Mm -hmm. So yeah. again, if you have the time, go for it. But um, you might be able to get away with a higher frequency than couple of passes a week. Well, the funny thing is he may do that a couple passes a week and it may still warp. Right. Or he could do it all in one day and it may not warp at all. I mean, <laughs> yeah. is, that's the great thing about working with wood is sometimes you just don't know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that the great so thing true. about it. Uh, <laughs> yes, that is. All right. Next question we've got from uh, Dusty. He asks, I make mid-century styled coffee tables and what I do now is buy furniture grade plywood in whatever species the client wants. What I'm thinking of doing, though, to save money is using Baltic birch substrate and then veneering the top. 
My question is, what's the best method for attaching the veneer? And what is the best glue to use? I've looked at the website uh, joewoodworker.com for building a vacuum press. Is this a good direction to go, or should I just rig up some clamping system and use good old wood glue? Dusty. Uh, I think you're going down the right path, Dusty. I think that's a great idea. There, there's. I mean, it's really hard to argue with the effectiveness of a vacuum press when it comes to veneering. Um, good, consistent clamping across the whole surface. It's you know fairly fast, dependable. That would absolutely, if you're going to get heavy into veneering, you got to do that. Um, trying to do some sort of old clamping system is you know getting pressure across a wide board like that is really really tricky. Um, you have to have a very elaborate clamping system to make it work. So absolutely go ahead, build yourself one of those vacuum press systems that they make, buy a bag and don't look back. As far as glues go, generally speaking, you, you kind of want to avoid regular wood glue for most veneering projects, especially larger ones. Now, the thing is, what's interesting about veneering glue is that, you know, years ago when I first started this stuff, I was very David, well, and still am very David Marks influenced. And he used all of the really nasty stuff, you know, the urea for <laughs> formaldehyde, things like Unibond 800, Urac 185. Uh, there's even a water-based material that you can use that's, uh, well, it's, it's uh, diluted with water. Uh, DAP weld wood. These all contain some seriously nasty chemicals. So as is the case with many things, people tend to want to go to more environmentally friendly and health conscious sort of materials. So there's a lot of other options out there in terms of uh, veneer glues. And I'll be honest, I haven't done a whole lot of veneering in the last few years. So this is an area that my personal knowledge base needs to to catch up on. But you were at the right place because if you're at um, the place where you could learn how to build the press, the sister site is called veneersupplies.com and it's run by the same guy. So if you go to veneer supplies, you'll see a section, uh, look on the left-hand side for glues. And there are just a, a bunch of different glue formulations here. Talk to those guys and find out what they recommend, what what options are there. There's a lot of good stuff. And you just don't, from what I understand, and people that have you know done a lot of veneering recently, you just don't need that really nasty, dangerous stuff anymore. There's other options out there that you can use. Um, so definitely take a look there. It's at veneersupplies.com. Very you know what cool. I, I love about joewoodworker.com? He's become like the resource for veneering and vacuum pressing. Mm-hmm. But like he's this mysterious guy. He lives like five minutes from me. His warehouse is five minutes from me, but it's not like a walk-in store. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He's just, I mean, you would never, I could like shop at the same grocery store as Joe Woodworker and I would never know. One of these days, I'm just going to go over there and like pound on the door. Let me in. The funny thing about it is when he, when it, I guess, I don't know when exactly when he started, but when I first got into woodworking, he, he was around and it was very clear that that's what he was like a guy working out of a back room of his house. Since right. then, the site's gotten gotten a lot more professional. The site split off. It used to be all one website, and it split off into veneersupplies.com and then the other one for Joe Woodworker. Uh, so, yeah, it's grown quite a bit. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it's just one of those mom-and-pop businesses that you just love to support. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I bet you his name's not even Joe. It's probably Bill. Bill Woodworker. Yeah, just <laughs> yeah. didn't, didn't, didn't uh, roll off the tongue with the URL, so he just went with yeah. Joe. It was like Bill Knitter. So. All right, hey, this next question comes in from Scott, and Scott's asking, I recently started mixing my own finishes and had a question about storing the unused portions for, of these concoctions. Mm-hmm. For example, when mixing varnish, uh, boiled linseed oil, and mineral spirits, what do you do with the leftover finish? Drink Throw it away or store it for later? If you store it, what is your method of storage, such as mason jar? And is there a way to determine the shelf life for these home brews? Uh you know, I don't do a, a lot of the uh, home concoctions, making up my own. But typically, that's why I gave that you this read, question. <laughs> it's just like one of those. Oh, you guys did it to me again. <laughs> like, gotcha. uh, but from what I've read and from talking with certain individuals and, and and some people I will call friends, is typically in most situations, uh, depending on what it is. A lot of these actually, you you tend to use most of it, I think, before it would run out. I mean, you would have to make a really decent sized batch to be concerned about it. As far as I'm concerned, especially, <laughs> he's, he's I mean, mixing it in ten gallon buckets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, well, I'm going to go to the home center and I will get those uh, leftover buckets that they use to bring in all the oil or something. Mm, nice. Um, I think most of this stuff has a really decent shelf life. The main concern is making sure that you've got the lid on there the right way so that the – because if oxygen gets into this, it tends to be the oxygen that will really start messing with the finish, and that's what's going to mess you up. 
And on top of it, it also sure seems like if you keep it out of the sunlight, uh, that's another one because sunlight mm-hmm. really loves to degenerate all sorts of finishes and not just when it's on the actual project itself too. Sometimes there are certain finishes, I can't name them off the top of my head, uh, that when exposed to UV light for a long term, it will really start breaking the bonds that are in there. Mm-hmm. So that tends to be, you know, my whole thing when it comes to homemade concoctions. You know, one little thing that might be simply to uh, kind of going off on a tangent a little bit, maybe make smaller amounts. And then that way, if you do throw away, you don't feel so guilty about it. There you go. Do what I do and finish like six projects at a time. Or don't put it off and put it off and put it off. Yeah, just last week, like (laughs) two years worth of projects. I was going to say, I thought your system was not to finish at all. (laughs) No, I just pile them up. Ah. Get them done in batches. All at once. <laughs> well, it sounds like how he makes, makes lathes. So just do a whole bunch of them yeah, at once. Basically. I'll, and I'll finish those sometime next April. Batch them out. There you go. Um, and, although I got to say there's one thing we're, we're forgetting here that I find really, really fun. Um, I always um, take the finish and dump it into something else, you know, the, an application something, cup, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then whatever's left, I just leave it and let it dry because then you can peel it out of the bottom and it's really cool and like, like jello-y and everything. It's awesome. It is. Actually, the kids. That's, uh, that's what I do when I want to kind of evaluate how hard a finish is. So if you get like spar varnish or something that's generally a little bit more flexible and right. compare that to the same thing with a little dish of regular interior polyurethane, uh, let those dry in a very thin layer, and then once it's done, pop it out and feel it. And you can actually feel uh, there's a, a very obvious difference between the the resin that's left over and how soft it is, which kind of gives you an idea what the properties of that finish is in a, in a real thin layer. Um, you know, just to give them a, a few more data points here to think about, what I do is I typically use cans. I save cans from finishes and reuse them, and sometimes I'll even go buy some empty cans from the home store. <coughs> Quarter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but hey, my finish is my finish is still usable. Um, I put the leftover stuff in those cans, and I use bloxygen. And bloxygen is that uh, can of inert gas that you could put on top of uh, your finishes, and basically gets the oxygen out of there. Because here's the thing: the way you know if the finish is bad, it starts to clump up, and you start yeah. to see like little, little dried bits of finish and, and chunks in there. That's how you know it's on its way out or already gone. Um, so mason jars are perfectly fine, cans perfectly fine, but one of the best things you could do is just spend a few bucks, get a can of bloxygen, and uh, blow a little bit of gas. Not, Don't get any ideas, Matt. <laughs> don't get any ideas. I know what you're thinking, Matt. Um, that is not inert. <laughs> no, it's very dangerous to do that. Uh, but yeah, just use some of this bloxygen stuff, and that will absolutely increase the life of your finishes. Nice. I. Uh, let's see. This is from Paul. Paul says, I'm from Ireland and I live in New York now for the last eight years. When I was in Ireland, I was a hobbyist woodworker making furniture and hurleys. Hurleys is an Irish sport played with a stick, kind of a mix between hockey and a lacrosse stick. These uh, hurleys are strictly made from ash. In Ireland, there is one type of ash, but in my research so far, I've come across loads of different types here. There's mountain, green, black, narrow leaf, etc. Can you tell me which type would have the best characteristics for sporting use? It has to be air-dried and rely flexibly uh, uh, for the best results. I can't seem to find any source online for ash for baseball bats, which I think would be the same. P.S. My wife hates all three of you guys. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, Paul, the, the ash you're talking about over in Europe, uh, interestingly enough, is called European ash. But what I like about European ash is its Latin name is Fraxinus Excelsior, which I just think is awesome. It just sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Something a superhero would say before he flew away. Um, the Probably, I mean, you're right. There's a lot of different ash in North America. Um, more often than not, it's called white ash. And white ash is a specific species, although it tends to get lumped all into one. And you might have some mountain ash or some laurel ash or something like that, but it's generally sold as white ash because people don't know any different. Um, The working properties are not terribly different amongst these species. They're just kind of regional variations. has to do with soil chemistry and things like that. But for the most part, they're all ring porous woods. So they're going to have a fair amount of flexibility to them. They're going to be good for things like axe handles and hammer handles and such things like that that take a lot of dynamic stress. In other words, the cross sticks and hurley sticks. So I think finding 
you just need to find ash and you'd be fine. The reason you're not finding a source online for ash for baseball bats is Major League Baseball has moved to Maple um, some time ago. And there's a, a long storied history as to why that happened. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea, but I think it has to do with power transfer and the ball goes further and all that fun stuff. The problem you're going to run into right now is there is a bit of an epidemic in North America due to the emerald ash borer, the nasty little insect that is decimating our ash trees. So it's not that there are – it killed all the ash trees. It's not like the chestnut blight. But the sawmills don't want to bring the stuff in because you don't know if there are bugs in it and the bugs will happily jump from an ash tree to a cherry tree or a walnut tree or the logs they have in their yard. So it's it's like you know bringing a person infected with flu into your office. You're just all asking for it at that point. So there's not a lot of ash being sawn. The other issue you're going to run into is finding it air-dried. Generally these days, if you want air-dried lumber, you're going to have to go to like a log yard or a very small kind of mom-and-pop sawmill. Most of these guys have kilns now because kiln-dried material is what's become commonly accepted. And if you want to make money on it, it's got to be kiln-dried. Um, the only people that are buying green material are the ones that have kilns themselves. So your best bet is to look for uh, a micro-mill. And if you go to the Woodmiser website, there is actually a finder on there that will help you find Woodmiser owners. These guys generally have you know, the ability or sawing up logs themselves, that may be your best bet. Um, in the New York area, I can't say off the top of my head if I know of a micro mill. But um, mm-hmm. if ash doesn't work for you, hickory is a good idea. Um, any of the oaks would be a good idea. The thing is you're going to want to make sure you rive that out. You don't want sawn boards because you want perfectly straight grain stuff. So cool. really any ring porous wood would be good for you. Just curious, have you guys seen the size of Hurley's ash? <laughs> no, I haven't. We don't, I hear that, I hear it's phenomenal. That that you know when you were talking about that it reminded me of a conversation my wife and I had cuz my my mother-in-law has an ash tree out in the front yard and I said, "You know, your mom's got a real bug up her ash." That didn't go over very well either there. I like that. I like it. All right. So, uh, you know, we get iTunes reviews once in a while, which we appreciate. And if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, you can do that. Just go to the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and you can tell Matt how easily you get lost in his eyes. You know, it's because I have Betty Davis eyes. That's what they say. That is what they say. Uh, We'd like to thank the following folks for their awesome reviews. Christopher Allen, Jaw to Jab. That's great. Jaw to Jab. Very cool. Uh, (laughs) Ms. Woodchucks and R. Rose Levy, who had this to say. Always entertaining, never dry. Almost sounds like food or a drink. Mm, food. Uh, premise. Three hosts talk about their woodworking exploits while the audience is forced to listen. <laughs> Characters. <clears throat> Characters. Mark plays the part of the smooth-talking, overly-equipped high-end woodworker who has never used a hand tool long enough to chip a tote or tarnish a soul. I, I have, and I just buy a new one. Uh, <laughs> Matt is the perpetual self-deprecating neophyte who chants fingers and thumbs, don't be dumb. Shannon plays the part of the ruffled shirt-wearing galoot who often boasts about all the ridiculously cheap exotics in his personal stockyard. (laughs) The result? The show's a blast, expertly produced, and the woodworking information is always top-notch. Mark really seems to know his machines and wood, and Matt is a passionate woodworker with which most of us can relate. Since I'm predominantly a hand-tool woodworker, Shannon's expertise and perspective is particularly welcomed. I look forward to every episode. Even though all I ever talk about is wood on this show. That's true. So, next week, I'll talk about finish, and Matt can talk about wood. He just talks about wood and lathes. That's about it. Actually, I was hoping on the next uh, episode we could talk about your ruffled shirt. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Puffy shirt. Puffy shirt. I was just thinking, what was that Seinfeld reference? All right. Uh, remember, today's show is sponsored by Festool. You can find them at FestoolUSA.com, as well as ArborTech at blog.arbortechusa.com. And don't forget to get into their big contest that they're running, and uh, information's right there on their blog. Uh, you could also sign up for a recurring donation if you are so inclined. Go to woodtalkshow.com, look in the left-hand column. You'll see a few links there. You could sign up for 2 5 $10, whatever, or even a one-time donation if you want to. And we will thank you here on the show because we always appreciate that. And I think that's about it. So, Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. Absolutely. Hey, folks, if you have a comment, question, maybe a topic suggestion, you're wondering how it is that you can get out of my eyes because you're so lost in them. Mm. Or you would like to point out at the beginning of the episode where I said, hey, we all have turning things going on on our bench. And it just turned out that the closest thing to turning was Matt thought ellipse was like round. (laughs) So, yes. (laughs) 
Yeah. So if you have any of those uh, suggestions, etc., you have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. You can even leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or the downloads from today's shows or previous episodes, or even you want to leave a comment over there too, you're going to find all of that stuff over at woodtalkshow.com. And we might even remember to put in the uh, links for stuff that we talked about in today's episode. Perhaps. We'll see. Maybe. See how I feel. If you have not so drowning in my eyes. There you go. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.